Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. You know, the, the reality is that our situations are not always good. These things that happen in the world, they're tragic. The things that maybe the church has done to people, it's, it's tragic. It's, it, it makes me grieve. But really, it's just an indication of how people are flawed. I have a hard time believing that this is a reflection of who God is. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim. A trilingual Korean American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is James Lee. James is a philosopher, college pastor at Yongnak, LA, and a lecturer at Biola University. He's also a good friend and one of the best minds that I know. James has a master's in pastoral care and counseling and a doctorate of ministry in integrative theology and philosophy. This is a deeply meaningful episode for me because I always wanted to uphold not just my spirituality, but also my Christian faith more openly on the show. But fear of the mob attack from the interweb has stopped me until now. But Godspeed to us. In hindsight, this will either be the best decisions I've made on the show or the worst, but only time could tell. James is the perfect guest to discuss all things faith, religion, philosophy, and culture, especially in modern America, where Christianity has not had the best reputation. And of course, rightfully so with all the horrible things it had done historically. That said, Sit back and enjoy this refreshingly unique and honest conversation. James, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Really、uh, humbled and glad to be here. So, given your background, given your as a deep, deep thinker, I wanted to start this episode on a very high note. And I think you'd appreciate where we start this. So, more than 130 years ago, a German philosopher Nietzsche he declared God is dead to express his grave concerns for the rise of nihilism or hopelessness. Right? He didn't declare God is dead is because, like, oh, look at us. We don't need God anymore. But he declared it in a very nihilistic, almost a sad way to people who actually understand his philosophy. So, in a world where organized religion is slowly dying, especially in modern America, what is your why for entering the ministry work? Oh, man, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I think for me,、uh, especially in the context of ministry,、um, there's this. Innate desire in me to help people、uh, live a flourishing life. And there's a lot of debates about that. How do we go about this?、Uh, what constitutes flourishing? There's so much nuance to this. But I, I think 
what I've come to understand is that uh, the Bible, Scripture, Christianity, it, despite all the, the the craziness that we see in media and some of the the bad things that we see portrayed, uh, I do believe that Christianity and faith and Scripture and God it provides us uh, all these things provide us a really good compass or direction for all people to really thrive and flourish in life. And uh, really, Christianity helped me be a better thinker and a better feeler. You know, you mentioned that I work with college uh, students primarily, and this is true, but I don't want to limit myself just to college, but rather I'd say to all people, I want to help others think well, feel well, understand what their life means, understand the value that it has, and be informed that maybe God is, uh, God is the best answer to a lot of our questions, to a lot of our fears, our doubts, etc., and so this is sort of why I'm in the pastoral ministry route to to help people in this regard. Yeah, it makes sense. So on that train of thought, like what are some of the most common barriers or resistance to faith or to scriptures you have encountered doing this pastoral ministry, right? Because like every generation's their mindset shifts, right? Their beliefs become more progressive over time, generational speaking. Of course it's a blanket statement, but uh, I think by and large society moves either one direction or the other. So maybe recent years or speak from your experience, uh, what are some of the common barriers or themes you have encountered as a, as a college pastor? I wish there was just one. <laughs> I can think of several, to be honest. I think a big part of, I think a lot of times when people would uh, go to pastors or leaders, and, and this isn't always the case, but a lot of the, my context in SoCal, I've seen a lot of issues or instances where pastors or leaders would simply uh, tell someone to pray about their issues. Uh, a lot of deflection, um, not a lot of listening. Uh, I've also seen a lot of leaders sort of wait for their moment to speak as opposed to actually listen to something that someone else is sharing. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, it causes hurt. A lot of that stuff, it causes tension. And I, I know that that's been a big issue I've been trying to work, navigate through because I don't think that's the best representation of the gospel. I think it's, in fact, really poor. And having said that, I, you know, how, how do you sort of walk through a lot of the hurt and pain that people have? You know, it's a very delicate thing. It's very sensitive. You have to be uh, tread very lightly. Uh, you know, I'm not a trained clinician either. And so I have to be extra careful because I don't want to, you know, kind of like trigger something within a person. And so I think, I think if I had to name one thing, I would say church hurt. But the other th side of it too, uh, the other big obstacle I would say is, and again, this is sort of a generalization, but I think for the past couple of decades, the church has done a bad job of answering questions. Working with a lot of young people, uh, young people have a lot of concerns, a lot of doubts, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think uh, all those things are normal and I think those are okay. But in the past, a lot of doubts and a lot of uh, uncertainty has been demonized. A lot of times young people would be told, you just have to believe more. You need to have greater faith. You'll hear a lot of that rhetoric. And to be honest with you, I have no idea what any of that means. I don't know what it means to have greater faith. I don't know how you'd measure that. That It's a lot of arbitrary language that I think has been, it's good intentions, but it's been unintentionally div divisive. And so to really help young people or people in general navigate through doubts, navigate through uh, uncertainties, I think that's been a big obstacle. But that's also been a really big blessing because whenever people share their hurts or they share their doubts, it's not a moment for me to force down Christianity. 
but rather it's a it's a moment for me to process things with people and to think deeper and to understand our feelings and and so despite those things being giant obstacles they've also been great opportunities for me to connect with someone on a more intimate level yeah uh, that reminds me about like c.s lewis's teaching right like god whispers in joy and pleasure but he screams through a megaphone or god uses pain as a megaphone or the quote of wound is where light enters I think there is opportunity if you can navigate it very carefully. So I want to zoom in on a lot of the pastor's default answers is pray more. Your faith isn't strong enough. Like, how do you view prayer versus action? Because I think there's a lot of believers have this delusion that if I pray about my illness, I don't have to go to the hospital. I don't have to do anything. God will prevail against all odds even though we're both human and being, like we still have the meat suit and we still have to do a certain things to get our meat suit fixed. How do you view that rhetoric or some of the believers uh, thinking like that? I always uh, shudder at those thoughts, to be honest, because I, I really don't think it's a matter of faith. Uh, it, you know, if you choose to go to a doctor, it's not that you don't believe in God. I think it's more reasonable to believe that God has given us the resources to get healthy and to get better. And, and so why not go ahead and use those resources? It, it's, I mean, I, I remember a, a analogy that someone told me a while back when I was in high school about um, there are these two guys that were uh, sort of stranded on this boat. They were both praying, God, uh, you know, help me, like, save me, save me, save me. There was a boat that came by. And they asked, oh, hey, do you guys need help? Uh, do you guys want to come on board? And both those guys were saying, oh, no, God will save me. And that boat left. And then uh, there was a plane or helicopter that was circling that area, you know, mega, uh, blasting on a megaphone. Hey, do you guys need help? Oh, God will save me. You know, that's what they said. And the helicopter left. I, you know, I think about that analogy and I think that's somewhat relevant to, to this idea that God will answer all our prayers or that we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to go to the doctor. Now, I, I want to nuance this by saying I do believe that if we pray that there is possibility of full restoration and healing, especially if we're sick. Uh, there's been a lot of miracles that have happened in people's lives. And oftentimes it's really hard to give an account for that. And so I like to attribute that to God. But, you know, for the most part, those miracles aren't as frequent as we'd like for it to be. And so uh, yes, we, we can pray and we can uh, have this desire and this expectation for God to heal us. But at the same time, is it really a lack of faith if you decide to go get a checkup from your doctor? I don't think so. I, I think uh, a lot of that rhetoric, it's, I hesitate to say distorted, but I, I can't think of a better word, but I think maybe it's a distorted view of faith. Um, and yeah, it might not be the healthiest approach. Oh, and I hope I answered that question. I just realized. Yeah, no, I think you yeah. did. The... And of course, the uh, analogy, I also know that analogy very well, is that God is answering to their far cry of saving them through sending the boat and sending the helicopter. But I think a lot of times our innate perception of what God's answering of our prayers look like is different from how God actually answers our prayers. And that's a huge difference. Like perceptions of reality is not reality. It's just a perception of that. So I want to highlight that for the listeners. Yeah, no, that, that's a great comment because I think a lot of times when we when we talk about spirituality or when we talk about faith, there's always this underlying assumption of supernatural expectations. And I think I, I get it. God is supernatural in his very nature. And so you're naturally going to think think those things. And our expectation as as people is that if God is real, 
then he would do something supernatural. If if we pray to him, then his response will be supernatural. And, and so I think it's a lot of untangling that to see if that's actually reasonable and if that's consistent with God. And so there's a lot of unpacking that we need to do. But I, I think your comment is brilliant. I want to go down to the train of faith since that's like the underlying threat of our conversations. So before I ask the question, uh, what I mean by that is I had a conversation with a friend, Duke. He's also a Yongnak baby. He's in the mid-30s now. And him and I were talking about the difference between active blind faith and trust. So I think a lot of people have trust in God. When they look back in life, they could sense or witness the footprints of God or these so-called God moments throughout. So they're like, okay, when I look back, there's evidence to show me that God is real in my life. Therefore, I trust God. But Duke was urging me to think, you need to elevate and level up from trust to faith, where faith is without looking backwards, without seeking any evidence, you're just blindly navigating life by moving forward, telling yourself that God has my back, whatever that back looks like. And because I think faith cannot be predicated on evidence, that's not faith, that's trust. Right when you have to seek evidence, it's not faith. At least that's the way I contextualize it. So, like, how do you first of all define what faith is? Because you talked about some people may have unintentionally, not their fault, have a diluted or distorted definition of faith. And how do you see the comparison between faith versus trust? I think when I grew up. Uh... You know, I can I can think of all the times where people say that faith is blindly believing in something, and uh, that's still a lot of the rhetoric that we hear today, especially in our culture and whatnot. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think that's a great description of faith. I think that faith and trust are interrelated, uh, and and I think really the the definition that really stuck with me, um, I, I think it was said by a philosopher. I think it was J.P. Moreland that said this. Um, he, he's a Christian philosopher at at uh, Biola University, and I'll do my best to try to represent him. But I'm not sure I'll get this right, but faith is is belief and trust because there's good reason or evidence to believe it. And the example I remember hearing was how when you go to a doctor's office you're generally going to have faith that the doctor is going to know what they're doing, right? You're not going to, you're not, for example, you're not going to go to uh, like me, a, a ministry guy, a philosophy guy to, to take care of your medical needs, right? Sure. There's a doctorate, but it's a different kind of doctorate. right? It's not the same thing, but with uh, generally speaking with MDs and DOs, uh, you, you have confidence that they have that training and they have the education and they have the skills to, to make you better. Right? If you need an appendectomy, you're going to go to a, a surgeon. And so you're going to have faith that this person will get the job done. And so I think that's a better representation of faith. Um, and I want to be charitable to this idea of blind faith. I think uh, that's, again, that's a lot of rhetoric that you hear in churches or in, in, in conversations about faith or spirituality. And I think it's, it, it makes sense only in sort of the infantile or the beginning stages of faith where you know you're brand new to sort of any belief system you're not really sure what you're believing and so you sort of take everything at face value but as you start maturing and learning and growing more your your faith begins to deepen your your convictions begin to deepen and so at that point it's no longer blind faith in the way that a lot of people would necessitate i think your faith evolves and 
And so I think there's definitely a, a sharp nuance between the faith that your friend was talking about and the faith that I'm, I'm thinking of. Whatever lens you view life through, I think as long as it serves you and it adheres to the accuracy of scripture, I think there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, so I do really appreciate your answers. And I want to talk about what you mentioned. Faith deepens over time. When I look at a lot of my friends and social network, people who fell out of faith over time, maybe they were devoted Christians in high school because of parenting, because of expectations, and they go to college, maybe they still went to church because of the habitual practices that was deeply rooted. But then over time, I've seen 95% of my friends fall out with their Christian faith. When I see these examples, I think their childhood faith was never converted to adulthood faith. Like childhood faith is pure, it's untainted, it's protected under the shelf of your parenting, right? You go to Sunday schools, you sing a couple Bible songs, you make friends, all these social elements, but then life, the reality testing of life is harsh. When you lose someone, when you experience grief, heartbreak, bankrupt, when you get cheated on, you're like, oh, screw God, this cannot be real. Why did this happen to me? And I think the root cause is their childhood faith wasn't tested enough to be deepened into this convertible adulthood faith. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? that? That's a really great observation. I think you hit the nail on the head with that because a lot of times, and again, this isn't to, to make a blanket statement about everybody, but there are a lot of, of younger folks who go through ministry, who go through church, who go through the motions and, and simply doing things for the sake of doing things without uh, comprehension, so to speak. And it's not to say that they can't understand or they don't understand. What I mean by comprehension is that they have a lot of knowledge in the head, but it, it sort of stays there. And it doesn't really mean anything or it doesn't become anything. And there's definitely many different reasons why someone would uh, deconvert from, from the faith. And that's a whole different conversation. But I think you're absolutely right in a sense that it could be that there hasn't been enough testing, or it could be that perhaps their understanding hasn't grown. It could be that maybe they've even had bad teaching. There's so many different variables that contribute to this, but you're absolutely right. And there are a lot of young people, especially around college age, who end up leaving, leaving the faith. Again, one of the things that I've noticed, at least, is sort of what you're saying. We're, we're not equipping students to integrate what they believe with their lifestyles. Uh, the examples I think you gave were, were perfect in the sense that, yeah, a lot of times uh, students are going to be faced with actual challenges. Uh, people will be faced with challenges. So that, that's just the consequence of being human. We go to undergraduate. There's a reality that in the midst of all that, we're going to have relationships uh, with people, uh, sexual or non-sexual. We're going to have issues in our families, maybe maybe because you know of that life stage, someone might be old and not well. Uh, we might know even someone within our circles who who either move away and we won't see for a long time, or maybe they have serious health problems. Uh, and how do you deal with that, right? How do you how do you answer those questions? I think it's phenomenally difficult. And I know that in the past, a lot of times, uh, you know, I, what I've heard, especially in my upbringing, is oh, God is good, and well, I understand that God is good, but it doesn't take away from the fact that these situations suck, right? And and I, I shared this with my my students in my sermon uh, about two weeks ago when the shootings happened in Texas. Uh, you know, we were going through this series in, in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And, you know, last minute, I just said, I'm not doing this. I can't do this, right? I have to talk about the, the tragedy that happened. And, you know, I, I remember sharing with the students, like, this really sucks. Like, 
too many innocent children lost their lives, teachers, people lost their lives. When we see this, how can anyone just say God is good? Like it was so hard for me to to say, let's come to church on Sunday and pretend everything's good when obviously it was not, when people were hurting, when people were suffering, right? And you know, the, the reality is that our situations are not always good. These things that happen in the world, they're tragic. The things that maybe the church has done to people, it's, it's tragic. It's, it, it makes me grieve. But really, it's just an indication of how people are flawed. I have a hard time uh, believing that this is a reflection of who God is because it's because we see so much evil and so much chaos and so much uh, badness in the world that it makes me think that there has to be something good out there that exists. Question of how do we sort of help people uh, reconcile deepening their faith and life situations? I, you know, I think we have to talk about it more and be honest. We can't, we can't sugarcoat it and pretend everything's okay when it's not. And I think uh, for too long, people have been afraid to sort of dive into that. There's nothing wrong with processing something that's bad and acknowledging for what it is. Yeah, that's sort of my stance. Yeah, I think the best way to raise awareness is by increasing visibility. In this sense, just by talking about it or upholding a space, it really affects, especially the way college kids nowadays, right? They're very transparent. They're more open about vulnerability. They want to have these curious and honest and oftentimes uncomfortable conversations. Whereas in the beginning, what you said, I think a lot of older generation pastors or priests or preachers, I think they tend to be deflective or shy away from that because they don't want to enter that space because it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to hit you with a very, very deep and difficult questions on the line of God is good, but life and circumstances aren't always good. The most common resistant and questions that non-believers ask Christians are, if there were a God, then why would there be all these sufferings in the world? Which is everything we just talked about, right? How would you, and also I want to clarify, every pastors, every preachers, every ministers have different way of manifesting and representing their faith. So of course, like James's perspective, it's his perspective, or just in the containers conversations, it's not a representative end-all be-all. I just want to clarify that. Uh, so how would you approach that question? This timeless, ageless questions of, if God were good, and if God is almighty, why does this happen to us? Yeah, yeah. This is where I would love to deflect to some of the philosophers I know, because they can, they can answer this way better than I can. Um, if, if God is good, why do... I mean, essentially, yeah, if God is good, why do these things still happen? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I think no answer I give will ever be sufficient enough. Uh, and I, I thought I'd just start off with that uh, because, you know, I, I definitely don't want to give the expectation that I have all the answers because I, I don't. And this is still something that I'm wrestling with and I'm processing. But as of now, with all the things that are happening, all I can really think about is, is free will. This is where there's always going to, going to be debate about the nature of free will and how much do we have it. And, and it gets very theological and philosophical. And even now there's a lot of debates about this still. But I think all the things that we see today, it's not really a question of is God good or whatnot. It's a question of what have we done with free will? And we have a lot of free will because we're people at the end of the day. I, I don't think we're robots. You know, I don't think we're meant to be one-dimensional. 
a lot of times people think I, people use the rhetoric of I'm a thinker or I'm a feeler. And while that's definitely true and I want to be charitable to that, the reality is that we're both and because this is a primary components of being a human, being a person. And so having said all that, I think the reality is that there's there's just a lot of free will that contributes to people doing crazy things. Uh, it's because of free will that that people choose to be very gracious and kind and charitable. It's because of free will that people start doing heinous things, right? Murdering, stealing, and, and you know, really dreadful things. And, you know, th this really ultimately becomes a question of why did God give us free will? Did he do this because he wants humanity to be destructive? Did he do this because he he wants he wants people to live their lives however they want? And I think I, I think free will is really an extension of his his love, and uh, you know I'd like to say that this isn't going to work for a lot of uh, a lot of people that are listening, and that's okay. Uh, you know, again, my 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 goal isn't to to say you have to accept everything that I'm saying. Uh, this is just one perspective. I think that God giving us free will is a demonstration of how much He actually loves and cares for us, because He's given us the capacity to be to be fully human. Uh, and and being fully human is best represented in Christ. Now, obviously, there's a lot of abstraction here, but I, I say this because God could have created us to be robots. God didn't have to create us at all. There's many other things that God could have done in terms of creating people. In fact, he could have created us with one less limb. He could have created us with uh, two heads or whatever the case is. Uh, but despite the the failures that we see in man, Despite the, the contentions that we have with free will and with God, uh, personally for me, I'd like to believe that everything that we see here, even though there's a lot of bad in the world, it doesn't take away from the objective good that we do see, the beauty that we see within this world. And I don't know that if God, if God created this world to be a little bit different, I don't know that it would, it would function the same way that it does now. I wish I can give a much more polished a much more meaningful answer, but that's just sort of what I've worked through so far. I've been watching a lot of those TV shows about multiverse or, you know, and like chaos theory and all these things. And I really thought like, okay, if would life really be better if we lived in a different universe where we, maybe we had an extra arm? Th is that really going to increase our function and our capabilities as human? And I, I don't really think so. I think what we have now is pretty great. It, it's just a lot of bad people have done a lot of bad things and it really does discourage us. But Again, it doesn't take away from a lot of the good that we see here. Yeah, and a clarifying note is the mainstream media tends to portray the world in a more lopsided, fear-centric way. And this is a fact. There is more good people than bad people. Otherwise, a lot of countries will be in proxy states, right? United States wouldn't be as safe as it is now. We would hear, we would not just hear about mass shootings. We'll see it in every corner, every city. That's not the case. Those are still far more extreme and rare cases, but when it does happen, it is devastating. But I do want to say that there is more good than bad. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, and I like to—I always like to encourage people to think about their context too, especially in a local scale, right? Meaning within their immediate surroundings, because despite all the craziness that's happening out there in the world, within our context, I, I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of good. Uh, for some people, they're married. And they love their their marriage. You now, for some people, they have a thriving or vibrant relationship with their parents or with their friends. Some a lot of folks have great jobs. A lot of people love what they're doing, and these are all still good within that context. Uh, yes, there's still bad things that happen outside, but does that really take away from the good that you have in your life? And 
I'd like to push back and say, I'm not necessarily sure that it does that. Yeah. And that's why it's about nuances and every lanes and every perspective and every lived experience is different. So here's another heavy topic since you brought it up free will. What are some of the mainstream thoughts currently in philosophy about free will? And what do you think about when people come to you saying that, James, pastor, are you sure there's free will? How, do you, how would you approach those two uh, questions? Like what you said, one group does believe that it is very reaction, or because our lives are so reactionary, we're obligated to, to sort of respond to the things that we see. And so that might not necessarily be free will. Whereas the other camp would say, well, you still have a choice to respond or not respond. And I, we're totally breaking this down in, in some of the most watered down ways possible. So I'm, and I'm just doing this for the sake of conversation because, but I think uh, those are sort of the bigger thoughts that I've heard in terms of what I personally believe, because I think that was the second part of the question. I still do think that we do have free will, even if we are responding to someone's situation uh, emotionally or reactively or whatever the case is. The, the reality is we still had a choice to listen to that person or to walk away from the conversation. Now, what we're, what we're sort of addressing here is the reaction based on time, right, within the context of the conversation. Uh, yeah, within that specific moment, uh, yes, you will react. If, if, if you share with me something that's very sad and devastating, yes, I will grieve with you in those moments. And I think, sure, there's an obligation for me to grieve with you, but one can argue there's not necessarily free will in that particular instance. But is that one instance definitive in terms of how we describe our livelihood, our time and space and all these things. No, it's just one point. Yeah, if you wanna make an argument and say, we don't have free will in that one moment, okay, sure, uh, I, I won't die on that hill. I'll say, okay, why not? But am I gonna use that one plot point to define the entirety of who we are? No, absolutely not. Even with food, I love, for example, eating um, sushi, or sushi and Korean barbecue. They're, they're amazing. Now, if I'm going to be at a crossroads one day where I, you know, I tell my wife, hey, let's go eat dinner. Some might say I don't have free will because it's my wife's decision. <laughs> but I'd like to think that I do have a decision-making capacity. I have free will to choose. So this conversation of free will, it really depends on how, how deep you want to go into it, how you'll define every single action. And I think this is where it gets really messy for a lot of people. And this is where most people tune out. And I don't blame them because it gets so heavy in terms of uh, of metaphysics and epistemology and then all these other fun topics of philosophy. But that's that's sort of a short, very concise, not concise explanation of that. Yeah. So what is a libertarian free will? It's pretty much our capacity as humans to experience free will within within our, our scale. It's pretty much your capacity to experience free will and my capacity to experience free will and that and that we have it because we're human. Uh, there's a lot more nuance to this, obviously, but this is a, a very rudimentary definition of it. So feel free to throw cast stones at me later for misrepresenting it. So is that along the same train of thought of like, I think, therefore I am? Like, is it the same translation as because we are humans, innately, we have a certain level of free will within our realm of experience because we are humans? Or are they different thoughts? I think the the Cartesian philosophy, the the whole I think therefore I am, or the cogito as as people like to say, that's a little bit different because I think that's more about uh, metaphysics and also in some sense existentialism. Descartes was more talking about how he thinks and he knows that that he exists because he thinks he knows who he is, 
and and it's not like necessarily an identity question it's more about existence uh the free will thing is more so about our capacity to make decisions our capacity to choose a over b uh, x over y and so on and so forth so it's it, slightly related but a little bit different i feel like i have to follow up with a few more questions because it's a very vast topic so how much of your belief in free will do you think is because that free will is an inheritance characteristics of our Christian faith. It's almost like as a philosopher, if you don't believe in free will, on a deeper level, you're almost denying your faith because free will comes with God. It's a buy one, get one free. It's a complete package, right? Because if free will didn't exist, then God cannot exist because that's what the Bible and scripture is based off of. So I'm just trying to see how much of your belief in free will is outside of the container of your faith. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and and this is again, this is a point that theologians, pastors, and well, philosophers too, they sort of debate on this because it's really a matter of how much free will do we do we really have. Well, I think for me, free will makes the most sense. And the reason why I say this, especially as a Christian, as a believer, is because at the end of the day, when when judgment and stuff happens, um, you know, we we're we're going to be judged for everything, right? For for all the good and all the bad. And it, it doesn't make sense to me to to be judged for something that I'm not responsible for if free will doesn't actually exist. How can how can anyone, for that matter, judge me for something that I did when I didn't really have a choice in that matter? If if God didn't create us to have free will, then that means that every single action that I, I take is all ordained by Him. That He knows that I'm gonna I'm gonna drink green tea from this mug. If this is a grave sin of me drinking green tea in this mug and he he ordained me to do this, then the responsibility portion com becomes very fuzzy. Now, I know that there's people that have sort of worked this out, but for me, I haven't really heard good uh, reasons or good evidence or good arguments for that stuff. And so this is where I really hold to the fact that we do have free will. And also, it, it makes sense to me, too, because we're all unique. We all have desires. We all have capabilities to do things. We all have skill sets. And, and the reality is that maybe some of it is psychological in a sense that because of our, our upbringing or because of our, our parents or whomever that we have certain proclivities, that makes sense to me. But at the same time, we still had a, a certain passion or a certain desire or a capability to, to choose something. I didn't have to go down this route of studying philosophy and, and trying to learn and be a better thinker. I didn't have to go down this route of becoming a pastor, or I didn't have to go down this route of understanding um, counseling and psychology from a Christian perspective. But I did because these are all things that, that interested me at the end of the day. Before, I was a terrible student, right? I, I'm, I'm the guy that that flunked classes. I'm the guy, I think I graduated high school with like a 1.5 or something ridiculous, right? And so I was a poor student. Even in undergrad, I had about 10 different majors. And so I'm not the guy that like, I knew what I wanted to do. And it was always predestined for me to, to do this from day one. I, like, I had to figure this stuff out. And I had, there's a lot of trial and error, but I think a lot of that trial and error speaks to free will. I mean, in the past, people would tell me I should do this, and I tried it, and I'm like, oh, I hate this. Why am I doing this? And I could have stuck with it because someone told me, oh, this is what God desired. But, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, is this really what God desired? And I realized, no, this is what someone else desired for me. And so, you know, I, I went somewhere else. I know you're very big about thinking about thinking, like metacognition aspect. And it's such an undervalued skill set now because 
I think a lot of people outsource their thinking to crowds or the certain thinkers or public figures they uphold on a pedestal. Like, oh, if I follow his or her or their belief, then I don't have to think for myself because they're famous, they're popular, they're smart. But I think that is the worst illness of our current generation and current era because you can't outsource your thinking because confirmation bias, you're adhering to someone else's idiosyncrasies, their belief system, and you might not fit into that pattern or that box, period, if you don't think for yourself. You're absolutely right about that. And that a lot of that is what really grieves me about people nowadays. They're more quick to share someone else's opinion as opposed to their own opinion. And, you know, when I'm asking for someone's opinion or when I'm talking to someone, I'm, I'm talking to you, right? Like in this, in the context of our conversation, I'm talking to you, Benoit. I'm not talking to, to my friend, uh, you know, out there that, that lives in New York. I'm not talking to my wife right now. I'm talking to you. And I'm interested in the things that you say. What, despite my agreement, you know, and uh, I care about these things because I care about you and because I'm in tune to the conversation that we're having. If I wanted the opinion of, of some, some politician or some thinker, then yeah, I'll, I'll just look it up on Google or I'll read one of their books. And I think that's, the, that's sort of the lost art of communication that we're seeing nowadays. Because things are so inflammatory, people are, qu are quick to share sort of this, this more popular perspective. And, and I, I sympathize with that, you know, it could be because people want to be accepted or they want to be seen a certain way, but you know, that really grieves me because I don't form relationships with people. I don't think any of us form relationships with people because we want to get something out of it. We, we do it because, you know, we genuinely care for the other person and we want to be with them. We want to spend time with them. And a lot of that spending time means sharpening ideas, right? It means exchanging ideas. It means growing. It means disagreeing. It means agreeing, you know? and and yeah, we can always bring in certain perspectives that, that someone else might have. You know, if we're talking about philosophy, I might tell you something that my faculty mentor, my supervisor said, and, and that can be a great data point, but it's not going to be a conversation where I adopt his views and say, these are my own views. I think that's a little bit dishonest first off. And, and I, you know, I don't really know that that actually progresses the conversation. And if I'm just bringing in views to make it seem like I'm an intellectual, the reality is that I, I have a lot of lack. There's a lot of things that I don't know, uh, especially in the world of philosophy and theology. I'm I'm a small time guy. Right? I'm not the I'm not Tim Keller. I'm not uh, Bill Craig. I'm not J.P. Moore. I'm not these like greats. You know, I'm just James Lee here living in in uh, L.A. County or Orange County now, right? And you know, and I definitely don't want to misrepresent myself, especially amongst friends who I know care for me. You know, I'd rather just be honest and, and be authentic in that sense. Yeah, James, I appreciate that answer. And I want to stay on the philosophy train a little bit longer since we've already hit on some major topics of free will, God. So might as well go a little bit deeper. And I like to uh, pivot into the more personal journey of yours. So another timeless debate, like the chicken or the egg question, uh, what do you think came first, our morality or spirituality? There's a part of me that wants to say that, that for some for some folks, maybe morality came first because morality really, it, it's epistemic in, in its very nature. And what I mean by that is we come to know morality because of our, our circumstances, our environments, things like that. Our parents teach us a certain way, culture shapes a, cer a certain way. And so um, maybe for some people, it could be spiritual based, 
if your parents are very spiritual and they they impart to you a certain morality, well, you, you epistemically know it because of your parents. And so in some sense, you can argue that, that spirituality came first. I think for me, at least, I would say it kind of happened at the same time. And the only reason why I say that is because I, I grew up in the church uh, at a really small church out in LA. And there were definitely a lot of things that I learned through Bible school or, or Bible studies or Sunday school or whatever you call it. Um, I learned things on Sundays. I honestly have a hard time pinpointing what came first because I think the reality is that it all sort of happened simultaneously. Um, now that's obviously not gonna be a satisfactory answer for a lot of people, but for me at least, that's the impression I have. Um, and so that I guess that's how I'd answer that. Yeah, because I asked that question because I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable identifying with a certain practice of faith with the things that I said in the introductions, right? Being religious in America, in the modern society now, it's not really a popular thing to do. And I think a lot of people tend to identify more comfortably with, I'm agnostic or I'm spiritual, rather than I'm religious. Whereas for me, I label myself and identify through both as my practicing Christian faith, plus my spiritual esoteric perspective of life. Because life is weird, like life is very strange, especially I have my background in psychedelics. So the strangeness of life is always there for me. That's why I think for me, having both Christian lens and also spiritual lens to view life through makes my life easier and it serves me immensely. So that's why I wanted to ask that question. I think what you're saying is brilliant because the reality is that morality still exists even if you're not spiritual per se. I know that morality can be defined in several different ways, and there there will all, there will all also be a lot of people who disagree with me. You know, I, I like to think about atheists and, and agnostics. I have a lot of atheists and agnostic friends, and they're some of the most gracious people I know. And I wouldn't say that they're not moral just because they don't believe. Uh, now, obviously, we have to unpack morality in a much more nuanced way, and and we can't talk about religious ethics and all these other things. But the reality is that. A lot of my friends that are atheists or agnostics, they, they care immensely for their friends and for their families and for people. And uh, they go out of their way sometimes to, to really take care of them. I wouldn't say that they're immoral people. I would also say the same about uh, people that have different faith backgrounds too. Sure, they have a different belief system than I do, but a lot of these people, um, they, they still care for other people. They treat people well, they treat people kindly. And yeah, maybe not all religions are, are good in that sense, because I know that there's some that are a little bit more um, harsher in, in terms of treatment and other things like that. And But this isn't a, really a debate about that. It, it's generally a question of are people moral? And I'd like to say that people are, for the most part. People do care about one another. People do care about uh, their, their families and their friends and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinguishing to have because religious people aren't synonymous with moral people or vice versa, right? Uh, morality is just, uh, I guess, how we view what is good, what is bad, and it has no relationship to religion. Even though I do think in Western society, religion, or in particular Christian faith, has played a large role in starting a lot of ministry work, a lot of charitable deeds. So there is a lot of intricate ties, historically speaking. So I want to take a, a slight pivot into the more personal stuff right? I think your identity is very fascinating because you almost have this intersectionality between philosophy, religion, faith, and also psychology because your master's is in pastoral care and counseling, right? And a lot of students and a lot of believers and a lot of people come to you 
especially younger folks, to help, to seek out maybe your emotional support or maybe your perspective. Uh, so how do you see yourself fitting in with those combinations? Because being a pastor, especially a college pastor, is more than just ministry. It's all of the above. Yeah, uh, I think this is probably uh, a great struggle of mine because I've dabbled in a lot of these fields and I feel so inadequate in, in, terms, of, in terms of what I've studied. Uh, I mean, the myopsychology, I, you know, I know enough to know what a DSM-5 is. <laughs> I, know, I know enough to know uh, that I should refer people and, and stuff like that. And um, even with philosophy, I know some, some stuff. But it's hard because I don't fit the normal, typical pastoral mold. Um, when I see a lot of people, uh, especially in California, when I see a lot of pastors, when I see people everywhere, I can't help but feel so different from them because the way that they preach is so different. The way that they do things is so different. Our values, even though we believe in, in the same God, the way that we approach ministry is just not the same at all. I kid you not. So this is a, a weird conflict I had a long time ago where, you know, I really do. One of the things that I, I do in terms of pastoral care is I, I'm not quick to dismiss people's experiences. And, and I, I actually tend to validate what they go through a lot. And, you know, in, in one of my experiences, when I was counseling someone, someone was so shocked by that. A lot of leaders, a lot of lay leaders, a lot of ministers said that what I did was wrong. To validate someone's experience and their emotions, that's really bizarre to me. I, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's bizarre to you. That's probably bizarre to a lot of people. And I think to myself, like, man, like, th this is not good. It's not to say that there aren't people that think the way I do. I'm sure there's a lot of people that will validate experiences and emotions and things like that. But at least within the circles that I was in, it, it was it was almost frowned upon. You know, at the end of the day, I, I take it all because at, it helps me be a better person. It helps me be a better minister. And and at the same time, it helps me explain my belief systems better, especially to people that don't understand. And, and you know, that, that's my hope that ultimately I represent God well and I re represent my beliefs well. And so I, do I fit the mold? I don't. Do I care? No, not anymore. Maybe I still do. I don't know. But <laughs> you know, that, that's just sort of my generic, I guess, response to, to that. So I want to talk about the concepts that a lot of people and non-believers view the Bible as a wisdom literature, right? Of course, as a believers, you view it as a wisdom literature, plus it's a divine words and truth and storytelling from God, right? So how would you, for the non-listeners or for the non-believers that's listening, if you have made it to this far, amazing, thank you, because I understand that this is definitely not an episode for everyone. But what would you say to people that, huh, okay, I, I feel like Pastor James is a pretty nuanced thinker, right? I like his perspective. I feel like I like the way he contextualized things. And I'm not necessarily interested in Christianity or become a believer, so to speak. But, huh, maybe there is something in the scripture. Huh, maybe there is something that I can derive some benefits from, from the Bible. What would you say to them in terms of the perspective from a wisdom literature perspective? I think that's fantastic. I'm very humbled that, that people could have that opinion. And I'd, I'd love to engage in conversation, uh, not necessarily to force someone to believe, but, but just to talk about some things that maybe make sense or that don't make sense. I think because I'm a believer, because I'm a Christian, I do believe that it's not only wisdom literature, but it's, it's, 
sort of this perfect example that we have in terms of living life and and having hope for 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 the future and things like that. I don't think it's right of me to expect everyone to start at that place. Uh, and the reality is I didn't start at that place too. There are times where I've had significant doubts and I've had to wrestle through a lot of things. And so for me to uh, demand someone to be where I'm at, I think that's really unfair. And I wouldn't want that for anybody, to be honest with you. And and so if someone wants to view scripture as wisdom literature and that be the foundational point for conversation, then great. Let, let's let's go with that. Why not? Yeah. So in terms of contextualizations, uh, sort of hitting your previous response, right? A lot of pastors and a lot of leaders may disagree with your approach of validating the lived experiences, validating the mental health aspect validating the human experience before bringing God into conversation, so to speak. I think this is a really important topic for us to revisit briefly because a lot of people are disheartened by a bad, quote unquote, therapist experience, right? They conjure up so much courage to see, you know what? I've had enough suffering. I want to take my ownership of my life back. Let me go see a therapist. The experience didn't go as well as they wanted to be. And they're like, oh, psychotherapy, is a, it's, a, it's a hoax. It's not real. It's pseudoscience. It doesn't work. And the therapy is dead to me. And they never see another therapist. To that, I empathize because I've had a bad therapist myself. And there's a lot of therapists that may not work for you. But would you try a pizza place? And you're like, ah, that pizza was trash. So I never want to try pizza again. That's very narrow thinking, right? So in that sense, I don't want people to lose faith in church or in pastors because they had a negative one counseling session with a certain pastor. So what are some of the encouraging words or what would you say to maybe some of the listeners that had their own respective negative experiences in their church? Uh, what would you say to them saying that, hey, that's not end all be all. Uh, give it another shot. Try a different pastor or anything in between the lines. As an authority figure in the church, I can't help but just to say I apologize. For, for to anyone, to everyone that's had that bad experience, I it's and it's really heartbreaking to me that this still happens to this day, and I understand why it happens, and it really should not be a reflection of of the person that gets hurt. So if that's if that's the listener, if that's you, then then you know I don't know if this means much, but as a, as an authority pastoral figure, I, I want to say I'm sorry that you experienced that, and I'm sorry that there's bad leaders. Uh, that's totally not your fault. And I grieve. I, I really grieve at those experiences because it, it should never have happened in the first place. I can't help but just just empathize. And and also I feel some a little bit of responsibility too, in a sense that even though I'm not the one that's doing that, I, I feel responsibility in a sense that I, I'm shepherding people, I'm taking care of people, I'm pastoring people, and I want I have to do my due diligence. I have to do this right. Uh, and that does put a lot of pressure on me, but I, I, I do it because I really want to care for people the right way, you know, and I want to I want to really help people. And so for a lot of people that are still struggling, too, it might be really hard to, to give church another chance. It, it might really be difficult. It might really be difficult to, to perhaps even listen to me because I'm a pastor. Uh, it might be difficult uh, to to even think about wanting to go back to church, even to give it a shot. And, and I can't blame anyone for that. Uh, you know, with church, unfortunately, trauma happens. And I, I don't know if people will describe it in that way, but I for sure definitely think that there's an aspect of trauma. If you've been hurt by something that was uh, deep, then you're going to carry that for some time. Um, 
But having said that, I, I would never want to push someone to try church right away if they're still dealing with a couple of things. Uh, you know, I think talking to a counselor really could help. I, you know, I myself see a therapist still, you know, and I, I think that's been a fantastic outlet for me to process things and to, to understand things. And obviously there's a lot of nuance to that too, because I understand it's expensive and stuff, but if you're able to do it, then why not? I think that's fantastic. But in terms of giving church and, and, uh, uh, pastors a diff another chance, I would really say don't rush. If you feel that you want to give it a try, then then great. Maybe talk to some some Christian friends that you have to get a get a feel for what what their church is like and what maybe what their pastors like. You know, and when you're ready, when you feel like you, you have a good opportunity or you feel like uh, you maybe you're mentally or emotionally prepared, then just to even reach out to that friend and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I want to try going with you. Um, is that okay? You know, I, I think taking it easy, taking it slow, not rushing into that, I think that could be the best thing. Uh, I'd also like to set expectations and say that perhaps the church that you walk into, they might mess up at some point. Uh, pastors will, will mess up at some point. Um, and maybe the church that you try out, it, it might not be for you. But all in all, in all that all that's okay. Uh, a lot of finding the right church, unfortunately, it is trial and error. Um, it, there's a lot of good churches and there's a lot of unhealthy churches, unfortunately. And it's like looking for a diamond in the rough. You know, you're, you're going to go through a process. You're going to uh, refine it. You're going to, you know, sort of like seek the best, right? And in that sense, uh, it, it is going to take some time. It will be discouraging and that's okay. Uh, it will also be encouraging at some points and that's okay too. But really, there's no obligation to figure it all out right away. There's no obligation to process all the, the hurt and the good that might come from these things. Uh, you know, my encouragement really is take your time and, and please don't feel like that your situations and what you've experienced isn't valid. Um, you know, yeah, you will still hold on to it. And I think you should for good reason because these are excellent talking points. Um, but as, as you hold on to the things that you've experienced and as, as you experience new, you'll slowly start merging ideas. Things will start blending together. Things will start making sense. Uh, people, I, I myself had to learn to let go of the bad and accept the good. All these things take time. And, and that's really the only thing that I can encourage. I don't know what else to, <laughs> what else to encourage people with, to be honest. Right? That just seems to be the most reasonable and the most uh, gracious and loving. Yeah, speaking of gracious, I feel like for a lot of empathetic people who care about people who gravitate towards church, whether it's Christianity, Islam, any other church, Buddhism, I think it's easier for them to extend grace for other people. But I think oftentimes it's really hard to extend self-grace to ourselves, like forgiveness for ourselves, be patient with ourselves, because that's what you're saying. The theme is be gracious with yourself and your own timeline. Because everyone has different timelines. But I just want to highlight the messaging board that whether you want to think about any church, not just Christian church, like temple, any religion, and you had a isolated or even maybe patternized bad experience, you know, give yourself the time to heal first. And I'm speaking as a clinician, right? Like heal first, process it. And when you feel like you're ready, aside from all the chatters, all the pressures or what everyone else is doing, like you might be the black sheep in your family. You're the only non-religious person in your entire family because of the unique and tragic experience you've had. That's fine. No one else in your family would understand because they don't have to carry the burden of your trauma, but you do. So please extend grace to yourself before thinking about anything else. 
And of course, we're just the vehicles. And we, I just wanted to impart some encouraging words because I have a lot of friends, including my partner, who've had many disheartened experience in their own church. I know you have too as well, even as a pastor. So the experience is not unique and you're not alone, right? The suffering is ubiquitous, whether you're in church or outside of church, and it looks different. But self-grace is really important. I want to revisit your struggle with your imposter syndrome in terms of you don't really fit the mold. You don't really fit this archetype of what a pastor or a good pastor looks like. And the underlying thread of that is nuances. Of course, this podcast is predicated on nuances. You are the most nuanced thinker that I know. It's exhausting at times. So why do you think that nuances are so important? And nuances, it's a dying art, right? It's in a in current society, everything's about soundbite, headliner culture. You read the first 75 characters and you assume what the entire article is about. So why do you think nuances are needed more than ever now? Because without nuance, it's so easy to miss people. I think that's the easiest way for me to break that down. You know, our culture, people, the people that we, we know probably, you know, we all, we're, none of us are immune to generalization. None of us are immune to groupthink even. And, and don't get me wrong, groupthink is absolutely dreadful. It, it's horrendous. And, and, you know, but the reality is that because of culture and because of our experiences and, and even things like internet, it's so easy to, to fall into that. And, and if anyone has, that's okay. I, I'm not saying, you know, like shame on you for that. It happens to everybody. But having said that, I think nuances are so important. It's, it's because that's where people are seen the most. No, when you think about context, when you think about something that a person's been through, you know, people have some of the most amazing journeys and stories, experiences that, that, you know, it always, it, it always astounds me. Some of the things that people have gone through, but you're not going to get that from generalization. You know, you, you get that from context. You get that from nuance. You get that from uh, simply listening to someone. And, you know, I think a lot of times when we don't nuance, what we're really saying is we know better than you, right? We know better than other people. I think nuance is, is where we see really the, the, the beauty of people and, and their stories. And for me, because I see, because I see that, because I can make those connections, I don't have it in me to ever not nuance things and not think contextually. I, I mean, even with scripture too, and, and the Bible, uh, you know, one of the things that they teach in, in the interpretation courses is that you have to think contextually. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the verses weren't written, written for 21st century American citizens. It was written for first century Jewish people, right? It was written for people in the ancient Near East. And even then you have to think contextually. And a lot of that still spilled over to me as I live today, as I do philosophy and psychology. I have to think about context and nuance. I have to think about what a, what a person's been through because if I don't, I just, I just find that to be very unloving, uh, at least in, in my life. And you know, far be it for me to ever think that I know better than other people. I have to understand nuance in order for me to even say anything, right? And, and so that that's just sort of the position I have. Uh, I do think it's really important, and I do wish more people would. Um, engage in contextual and nuanced thinking. But like you said, too, I do it to a fault, right? It's like every conversation I have, it's always like, well, I don't know what you mean by that. So I always have to yeah, clarify things. So yeah. I think a really powerful tool or a system that we can create to, I guess, bet against or fight against 
groupthink, confirmation bias, normalcy bias, whatever that is. Because it's sort of what we talked about earlier, where a lot of people have the tendency to outsource their thinking to crowdsourcing or to other people. So they don't have, and a lot of that is intellectual laziness, uh, frankly put, because thinking about deep thinking or thinking about thinking isn't always easy. It's not always pleasant. You have to examine yourself. You have to be introspective when you don't want to. You have to reflect when you don't want to. You just want to shut your brain off. And there's a lot of multitude of circumstances. A lot of people are forced with life that they don't really have the capacity to think about thinking. So I, I recognize all of that. But it really is important to think for yourself. And I think a good way to fight against the urge or this societal phenomena of death of nuances is having a great mentor or having people in your life that could help correct your course, so to speak. In our qualitative process for the podcast, you attributed a lot of your success or where you are in life to having great mentors and teachers. Of course, you're in academia, PhD, so there's a lot of mentors ahead of you. Uh, what does mentorship mean to you as a college pastor yourself who is currently mentoring hosts and hosts of college students trying to guide them towards a right pathway of life once they graduate from college and also in your own personal life? Mentorship is pretty important in my life. Um, I'm where I'm at today because I've had a host of great and not so great mentors, right? Some for better or for worse. I've had a number of great professors who effectively mentored me. Now they'll never say this because I never, I never asked them to mentor me. I just did the thing where I just asked them a bunch of questions and I asked them to hang out and stuff like that. So it's like unofficial mentorship, which is, <laughs> I get, I don't know, but those people, those, those mentors, so to speak, they shaped who I am today. They, they shaped how I reach out to people, how I love people. They shaped how I think. Uh, even this whole like being a nuanced monster, right? I, I mean, I am the way that I am because of a lot of my mentors, because they help me understand the importance of thinking contextually. And they're far better than I am at doing any of this stuff, right? The, the philosophers that mentored me, the theologians, the pastors, they're, they're way better than me at, at, at all this stuff. But for all of us, uh, th this isn't just a spiritual thing. I think for any of us, all of us, that we ought to have mentors because the reality is that we need people in life. We need people to, to love. We need people to love us. We need people to guide and, and to shape and to direct us. And, and, you know, and I think it's, it's wonderful to be able to have that sort of relationship. Now, having said that, I understand that it's not easy for a lot of people. Um, you know, some people might struggle with authority figures. Some people might struggle with vulnerability. And I definitely don't want to discredit any of that stuff. Uh, at least for me, there's been a lot of blessings because of that. And, and my hope is to, to reflect a lot of what I've been mentored in, to reflect that to the people I mentor as well. Now, hopefully I do a good job, right? That, that's always the hope. I want to be more specific and concrete with you to provide some more tangible value for the listeners. So I think it's really important to contextualize the type of mentors you seek and then the type of feedback and advice you seek. What I mean by that is as I get older, getting closer to 30, I realized you have to do a lot of vetting through is this the right mentor for me? Is this person going to give me contextualized and fitting advice that's fitting to my life and who I am? So for example, I will never ask someone for feedback or mentorship from a non-podcaster about podcasting. If they've never had a podcast, if they've never done this creative avenue, 
anything they tell me based on proxy exposures or whatever, it's irrelevant to me. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's almost like uh, plagiarizing or regurgitating something else they heard. They're like, hey, Benoit, you should do this. And I would ask, have you, do you have any podcasts yourself? How many years have you done it for? What type of podcast do you have? What's the genre? What kind of guests do you have? And all of these questions are the things we have to contextualize even with the type of people we, we seek. So how do you personally do your vetting process when you seek out a specific mentor that you think could impart you wisdom or give you benefits or empower you in a certain way? And what would you say to listeners that want to seek out valuable and contextualized mentors in their own lives, but they don't really know how to approach the process because vetting is not always easy? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, I'll first answer that portion about the self. If someone is desiring a mentor or something like that, and I want to connect this with something that you said earlier, because this, this is so important. Um, there needs to be grace for yourself. Like that has to exist. That has to be predicated on, right? And I, I say that because um, no matter what our methodology is for looking for mentorship or anything for that matter, um, there's always going to be holes in our logic. There's always going to be holes in our methodology. And, and that's okay. That, that's the consequence of us being human. It, it's all about trial and error. And the reality is that because people are people and there's so many variables, there's so many things that contribute to a person being a certain way or acting a certain way, um, there's no way for us to, uh, to be able to sniff out everything. There, there's no way for us to be able to know the ins and outs. We're not, we can't predict the future. We can't predict people. Uh, now, we have good reasons to think certain actions and th think certain things, but that's not really the same as um, like omniscience, so to speak. And so it, it's so important for all people to really have grace uh, for themselves, to be able to even have the capacity to, to make a mistake, meaning that oh, maybe this mentor wasn't the best for me. That, that's really okay for us to think and for us to feel. That's not toxic. That's not bad at all. Uh, I think the apprehension that a lot of people have is we do want to get this right because with mentors, we're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be challenged. We're going to be pushed. And it, it's, it's not an easy thing for a lot of people to sit with. It, even for me, sometimes it's not easy. And that's okay. Uh, but, but again, having the grace to even tell yourself, you know what? this mentor didn't work out for me. It's okay. I learned a lot and I'm going to find another one. I'm going to find someone that might be able to meet my needs. That's all permissible. And that's in fact rhetoric that we should be saying to ourselves over and over again, right? Because we are way too hard on ourselves in order to get things right. Like we almost expect perfection some more often than not. And, and this isn't for everybody, but I know for a lot of people, they want to get things right. There's this urgency, there's a desire. But to even tell yourself, hey, it's okay, I didn't get it perfect this time, that really goes a long way. Just to have grace and compassion on yourself. We need more of that in, in this day and age. Um, as for my methodology, I think one of the things I, that I really like doing uh, when I'm sort of seeking mentors is, and I like to ask myself, can I be friends with this person after mentorship? Uh, I, don't, I personally don't think mentorship is lifelong. I think it's, it's within a specific time frame. Uh, it could be a year, it could be two years, it could be a couple of weeks. You know, for every person it's different, but I do think there's a certain limitation with mentorship because once you're mentored in a specific area, then you've grown in that area 
and you have the liberty to thrive now, right? You have that capability. And so now you're sort of equal in, in a manner of speaking, right? Obviously, you'll always look at someone highly and they'll always be a mentor and you'll always have that gratitude. But at some point, you're going to grow in those areas that you're seeking mentorship and you're no longer going to be mentored in that area. And so having said that, for me, again, I like to really look at people. Can I, can I be friends with them? Can I have a meaningful relationship with them outside of even mentorship? Can I go to this person to tell me what I need to hear, to be gracious, to be compassionate? You know, I, I look, I really look at that relational component because that's so important. Um, because I need someone to be able to share with me things that I will be able to understand that, that will make sense to me. And so, yeah, that relational component is something I look, I look for. But in terms of the areas that I want to grow in, whether it's, it's uh, pastoral or philosophically, you know, I go to people that I know are experts. My supervisor at my doctoral program, his name's Greg. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I never formally asked him to be a mentor, but I, you know, I consider him my mentor, right? He teaches me a lot about philosophy. He teaches me a lot about what it means to be a good professor or how to lecture well and, and all these things. You know, another uh, friend of mine, his name is Brandon, same thing, right? He's a, he's a great theologian. And he's a great pastor. And I learned a lot of, a lot of stuff from him. And so, and, you know, and I can see myself having relationships with these guys, even outside of that mentorship thing. And, and so it's so important to, to find that, that person that can have that relationship with you. Or at least in my mind. I want to add another qualifier for the listener that I think is a good indicator, not always, but a general good indicator to see if this person will be a great mentor for you. And I do like the, your seasonality aspects of mentorship because I do think it's not always lifelong. But if you do have the opportunity to meet a lifelong mentor, amazing. But that's pretty rare, I think, at large. So I think a good qualifier to have is Ask yourself, will this mentor be proud and be happy about me maybe exceeding his or her aspects of career in the future through mentorship? Because I think mentors are humans and we need to make sure we don't seek out people who have, you know, jealous or envious type and who are generally happy to see you and impart whatever wisdom and guidance to you so that they're happy to see you succeed even maybe farther than where they are in life. Not always, but uh, I say that because I've had people who gave me guidance and who gave me mentorship. And after some time and exposure, spend some time with them, you can tell the ego. You can feel the ego and some tension as maybe you've accomplished something in your career that maybe they haven't, even though they've done it for a lot longer than you have. So I think that's a very effective and tangible thing to keep in mind when you seek out mentors is, does this person, as a human and as my future potential mentor, will they be really happy about where I will end up in life through this mentorship? Because a lot of times they might want to drag you down or they might not be really happy about that. Like, oh, no, you're my mentee. You're supposed to be beneath me, etc. Yeah, I would hope that's not the case. Uh, but I think that that point is so important. Uh, and I, I would even extend this with friends, too. Um, are, are the people that you're surrounded with, are they, are, do they celebrate you, right? Celebrate your accomplishments, celebrate the things that you do. I, I think that's so important because we, we need more of that, right? There, there's a lot of people that are tearing down uh, others and maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's a pride thing. I, I don't know. And frankly, I think that's quite ridiculous. But, but you know, if you, if you get a great job uh, in, in whatever field that you desire, then yeah, we should celebrate that. 
if someone gets a like a job at a at a really healthy, really great church, yeah, then let's celebrate that. That's fantastic. Uh, I think mentors need to; they ought to be able to do this actually, because you know, if if they don't, then I mean, not only is it very toxic in its very nature, but but you know, the reality is that people don't know how to celebrate you as someone that's being mentored. You're never going to know what you what's permissible and what's not permissible. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Right. What am I supposed to do in terms of the routes that I want to go if this person over here is always saying, no, I shouldn't be doing this, even though this is a really good thing, even though this is consistent with my values and what I what I desire for my life. Right. I, I think I think what you said right now is just so important. Yeah. And a lot of times also like psychologically, trauma carries trauma. So if you were brought up under the containers of jealous or zealous mentors, and you're like, oh, okay, my mentors used to push me down, didn't want me to succeed, maybe implicitly, maybe on the surface, they're like, oh, yeah, good job. But humans know we're very intuitive animals. And a lot of times we could sense the tension, if any. But a lot of times against their will, against their awareness, they also might become the representations of the type of mentors they didn't want to become. Like a lot of perpetrators. A lot of child abusers, people who are child abused, it's an actual psychological phenomenon that does happen. So I think it's really important to surround yourself with the right people so we also don't become the byproduct of the trauma by inflicting more trauma to other people. That's a vicious cycle. This is a very vast and wide question, right? I just want to throw it out there and to see where it sticks and feel free to take it whatever directions you want. But how do you view, because you're, you're fairly young, uh, you're in your 30s and you're not like in your 40s or 50s or 60s. So how do you see the clash or the intersections between the current American cultures and a lot of the older theological philosophies or beliefs? Because I know that culture is a big part of your background and your expertise. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think the biggest conflict that I see and I think that this is also largely a, a sort of an observation about America specifically. But, you know, here in America, we, we tend to prioritize individuality more than anything else, or individualism, I should say. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We, we do want people to be independent and to be, to be thinkers and, and feelers and all these things. I think these are all wonderful. But, but unfortunately, it's taken to the extreme sometimes. And I, I think that's where it gets a little bit rocky because um, when it comes to faith, especially when it comes to theology, it always becomes about what is God saying to me? What is this about for me, for me, for me, for me, right? We hear that rhetoric. And while there's some truth to that and there's some good to that too, a lot of what the Bible teaches, it's very communal. It's for the people. It's for the community. Now, Obviously, there's a lot of people who would disagree with that because of some of the rhetoric we see in, in media and whatnot, and and I, I sympathize with that. But that's where I see a lot of conflict. Like America saying it's all about the individual, and, and the Bible saying it's all about people, it's all about community, right? And how do we sort of combine these two? It, and it's sort of a work in progress right now. Uh, I, I think the the hardest part right now is is at least sometimes in churches, it's to show people, hey, we, we ought to care for other people. We ought to invite them into the community. We ought to be a, a unit, like one entire unit, right? Or in, in biblical language, we call it being one body. And I think that's such an important thing because there are several pieces that make up the body. There are several pieces that make up a computer or a car or whatever the case is. No one person is representative of an entire unit because we, we all build these things up. We make it up. And 
in that sense, I, I wish American culture sort of got that right in a sense. Um, I think sometimes we focus so much on the individual that it's always about what what conveniences us or what we desire or what I want, you know, and, and it's been taken to sort of a toxic level. And, and perhaps that speaks into a lot of issues that we see in the culture, maybe, maybe not. But I guess that's where I see just a lot of conflict in, in that sense. I have a follow-up question to that. So what did you mean by, I think, at times our culture, our society goes to the extremes? Can you tell a little bit more about what do you mean by extreme, maybe through observations, and why is it harmful? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of this is anecdotal. Uh, but I think when it comes to the extremes, it, it, it's really just about what, what comforts me or conveniences me more than anything else. And I, I know I said this a little bit earlier, but uh, comfort is, is wonderful. I love comfort. I would much rather be at my house than to drive two hours somewhere to, to do X, Y, and Z. I would rather stay home and play games. I'd rather stay home and read. I'd rather just do, you know, like convenience is king. But I think sometimes people, and I know I do this too, or I'm guilty of this. Uh, we take it to an extreme where we allow that convenience to motivate our selfishness. And sometimes we're so selfish to the point where, oh, it's like someone's, someone needs me. I'm not going to help him. Right? It, it, like maybe I'll help him later. Maybe, you know, someone's calling you because they want to talk about something, but I'm in the middle of a game. Uh, you know, I'll call that guy back later. I, I don't need to pause the game right now. It's all about my desires. It's all about what conveniences me. Like, to me, that's an extreme where you put yourself above everyone else. Now, it's not to say that we should always prioritize other people in, in such unhealthy ways. I think there are times where people need to prioritize themselves because, you know, if we don't have any fuel in the tank, then we have nothing to give. And so, obviously, balance is really key. Um, but I, I think my hope is that we would be more empathetic and that we would, um, be a little bit more selfless, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, you cannot pour from an empty cup is a cliche, right? But of course all cliches are tropes, but we're not saying that, Hey, neglect yourself for the others. It's like, as long as your own needs are being met adequately, not to this self-centered, selfish, narcissistic sense. Like you have to make sure your own cup is fulfilled and you're in a very harmonic, cohesive state. At that sense, you don't have a lot of triggers. You're very fulfilled. You feel good. You're happy. You're grateful. And then you can truly show up when your family has an incident or when your friends need your help. You don't have to be caught up on all oh, that. Wait, I have my issues. I need to address my issues first. You don't have that tug of war between your mind. You can say, okay, my friend needs me. I can show up for my friend because my cup is fulfilled and my needs already been addressed rather than it's about me, 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 me. And it's a full circle, the way we started this interview with Nietzschean philosophy, right? God is dead. He didn't say that in this pompous, arrogant way that, oh, we don't need God anymore. At his 130 years ago, organized religion has been dying. That's always the, the peak of the death of a lot of organized religion. And he said this very sadly. He said, God is dead. So now we as humans, this very fragile, tiny humans, we have to burden the shoulders of the world's existential questions. What is the meaning of life? We have to do this thinking for ourselves now. And that's why he said it's going to cause a rise of nihilism or this hopelessness. Like, what's the point of life? It happened. Whatever he predicted, it did happen, right? So I think it is, in that sense, very important for us not to get too caught up in me, me, me. That's egotism. 
that's how you become egotistical maniac. And a lot of horrible world leaders like Putin, Vladimir Putin, all these things are showcases of that, right? What happens if you put yourself on a pedestal above all else? It causes disasters and world burns down because of that. It does. It, it, I mean, it really shows you what happens when, uh, I guess, egomaniacal people are at the forefront of things. Uh, and and uh, this is also a, an indication of a lot of the church hurt that people may have received because it, it was never really about helping someone. It was more about conflating one's ego. And, and that's a very bold statement, mind you. And, and again, this isn't to be generalizing, but I, I think that's what it is a lot of times when pastors have the inability to hear or anything for that matter, right? It, it, it always boils down to, is it about the other person or is it about the self? You know, and based on all these things that happen uh, in our lives, you know, I really hope that the the default for people isn't to say that there's no meaning in life. We're not really nihilists. I don't think Nietzsche was actually a nihilist either. I think he was more of an existentialist, but that's a whole different conversation. But I think that's sort of the, the avenue that we're in right now as people that are experiencing the difficulties of life. We will naturally question meaning. We will naturally question things because of, you know, it's just a consequence of living. But it doesn't mean that there is no inherent value in the things that you uh, you experience or even in yourself. There's crazy value, right? I mean, the example that I use uh, all the time with my students is, you know, if you were to pass away and you no longer exist in this world, but you're able to see everything that happens. Think about, do you, do you, and I always ask students, do you think that people would really not show up for your funeral? Do you really think people would not show up to grieve you? You know, and, and I always use this example because the reality is that we're deeply cared for, but sometimes there's just cognitive dissonance. We don't see this all the time. We don't experience it all this time. And I think it's so important for us to remind ourselves that, hey, maybe we are cared for. We are loved. Hey, maybe there is meaning despite all these other things that seem to be devoid of meaning. Maybe that there's so, that there's some importance in life. And well, I guess I'll just end my rant there. <laughs> yeah. I think a natural follow-up question to that is, what do you think is the meaning of life? But that's too difficult, so I'm going to make it a little bit easier for you. Uh, what is the meaning of your life, James? Oh, I mean, those are those are still hard questions, man. <laughs> even with that slight nuance. Well, I, I think it really depends on like who who's asking me. You know, if it, if it's someone from church, you know, and and someone were to ask me like what my life means or or. I don't know, maybe that's a better way to say what my life means. Well, I think for, for the church person, I would say it's to represent who Christ is in all situations, to represent his love, to represent you know his deity, like him fully. It's just to continue to represent and glorify him. That, that's, my, that's my Christian answer, right? But if a non-Christian were to ask me that, I would say the meaning of my life is to, or I guess the purpose, right? That might be a better better way to frame it, but... The purpose of my life is to help people flourish and thrive. For me, flourishing and thriving, it's to be loved and to be cherished by the thing that, that that's most important to us, which are other people, right? So for us to understand ourselves better, for us to be loved and to know that we can love, for us to think deeper, to be fully human, uh, I, I think that's sort of my, my goal in life for, to help people with that. It's interesting because I don't, I think that life itself is inherently meaningless. I said this many times on the show before, but I don't view that as dispowering. I view that as empowering because I get to view life through the lens of I equip myself with, whether it's Christian lens, whether it's my clinical lens or whatever intersectional lens, 
I think that makes life more interesting. And I'm an optimist at heart, even though I carried a lot of cynicism from my policy work in the past few years before my pivot. I appreciate that answer too, because as you said, depends who you're asking, depends on the container you're in, your answer also switches. And that's why like, I really believe in this show and the nuances of it, because every human is multivariable humans. I just don't understand if you only have one hour episode, only about your job, only about the book you published. What about everything else that's in between? What about your thought process? What about who you are outside of the box of your career or your professional identity? I find that very suffocating to me. That's why I'm going against the algorithm to do these long-form conversations to stay true to who I am truly. In that sense, I do know that one of the most fulfilling that you alluded to that happens in your own life, whether it's your Christian answer or your non-Christian answer, is marriage. Is find and share or find a partner to share this fulfilling life with and through. As we said earlier, you're recently married right, officiated by your mentor and friend, Brendan. Uh, in our qualitative process, I asked you, what is your biggest accomplishment? The first thing you wrote down was getting married. Was that because you're like, oh, I never thought I could find a wife. I never thought I could marry Rachel or being married is a brand new life chapter. And it signifies a lot deeper things. You learn a lot about yourself, your partner. So what has marriage taught you, if any? But what has been that journey meant like for you? Yeah, it's been it's been hard, obviously, right? I, I don't know anyone that says marriage was a breeze, but I, I think um, with marriage, this this really helped me understand this concept of being, I guess, loved by what I am, essentially by by another person, being cared for by another person, and this ties into the flourishing thing, right? You know, even though I had family, even though I had friends. You know, it's different with a a spouse. It's different with with uh, marriage, and I always knew it theoretically, but but it's also different. I didn't realize how different it would be in practice. You know, I'm sure anyone can say with marriage, there's been a lot of ups and downs, and for me, that that's definitely the case, right? There's many times where I was a knucklehead. And I would philosophize discussions to my fault, right? <laughs> Just because, like, you know, I get, I get so, like, pimped up in, in emotions and whatnot. But not only has it been fulfilling, it's also a, a success or one of my biggest accomplishments because, I mean, for one, maybe when I was younger, I did think I would never get married. You know, I never really cared about dating until, like, maybe 24. And so I'm pretty late to the game. And even before, there were people that were interested in me, surprisingly. Uh, and I say surprisingly because I was genuinely surprised. But uh, I just, I never had a desire. I'm like, I'd rather be selfish and play video games. I don't want to devote my time to someone, you know, like, screw that, right? <laughs> um, but but I, I think it's an accomplishment for me because it was an indication of the fact that I can love someone. It was an indication of the fact that someone can love me and that I can grow. Um, and, and that despite challenges that there can be sort of a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and marriage is... is you know, because it's not just partnership. I think marriage is revelatory of a lot of things about who I am as a person, about my desires, about my my accomplishments, about everything, you know. And so that's why I think marriage is a success. But but it doesn't mean that it's it's hard. It's not hard because again, there's a lot of there's a lot of compromise, there's a lot of, of me being patient, there's a lot of me being understanding, there's a lot of if I have to use churchy language, it's it's about dying to myself, right? There's a lot of that going on, uh, and it's never easy. But you know, at the same time, I, I I'm willing to endure and to and to 
go through all these things because I, you know, I love the other person. I love my wife. Before your marriage, now it's too late. You're stuck with Rachel and Rachel is stuck with you. And both of you have to embrace your decision through Christ. But before your marriage, uh, did you believe in soulmates? Did you believe in the one? Or did you believe like it's a decision, you embrace it, and you uh, prevail through the lows and the highs? Yeah, I, I think the one is foolishness. Just straight up. <laughs> I, I think, uh, especially because I am an advocate of free will, I don't think uh, there's, there's one person that you're destined to be with. What reality seems to indicate is that at least in, in the beginning stages of relationship, that you can probably see yourself with many different people, right? You can probably see yourself with about five or six or seven different people and, and probably for good reason. Now, it doesn't mean you're a polygamist. No, it just means like you're thinking through like, what does it mean for me to be in a relationship? What does it look like for me to be with this person or this person? And for me personally, I believe that my wife is the best option for me. I believe that she's the perfect person for me. Um, it doesn't mean that she's the one. I don't. I think I had to work a lot to to make things work. I had to grow a lot. I had to sacrifice a lot. I had to really mature a lot. I think because of that, because of the willingness for me to commit, but also the providence of God. I think those things are what allowed me to to have a very fruitful marriage or relationship, even with with my wife. But um, you know, at, at the beginning stages of relationship, I didn't really think that there is the one. I think maybe now that I'm married, I can say she is the one because I'm happily married. But you know, when I was when I was looking for a relationship, I had no stinking clue who I was going to date. You know, uh, like who wants to date a philosopher, theologian, pastor guy, right? Who wants to who wants to date a guy that's going to ask what do you mean by that in every conversation, right? No one's going to want that. Um, and and thank God that my wife tolerates me uh, when I do that. She gets mad sometimes, but. You know, you learn about yourself, you learn about the other person, and you go through trials. Yeah, I think the greatest type of love, like obviously parents is viewed as unconditional love. They have the bonds, they have the parents to love, so it's a little bit different. But I think it's easy to love someone if you don't know their full self. If you only see the glamour side, if you only see their strength and their superpower, it's easy to love someone. Like it's easy for us to love a puppy because they're all cute. There's no, puppies have no flaws. Maybe they piss everywhere, but you train them, right? So it's easy to love a puppy because, you, you know, it's, it's a puppy. But I think it's very difficult to love a different human with different sets of genetics, different sets of training, belief system, parenting, culture, because you have, you're strangers. Literally, you two are strangers. And now he or she or they are willing to love you and accept you fully knowing your darkest secrets, your deepest insecurities, deepest fear. For them to still love you in spite of that and despite of that, that's insane. And I experienced that for the first time with Becky. I want to take a moment to honor our partners because Becky and your wife, Rachel, are incredible patient creatures to tolerate with both of us. We're both very heady. We're very cognitive. I know we both drain them a lot emotionally. So I want to take a moment to honor that. But I think truly loving someone after knowing your darkest side that's insane and when you have no bond of blood or familyhood i think that is what makes a spouse or your married a marital partner very special one more thing i want to say about in terms of i also don't believe in soulmate i read this book called the uh, course of love by alan de button he's a british philosopher he talks about love isn't just brain chemistry it's a skill set 
right? You have to go beyond the initial honeymoon phase of chemistry, lust, sexuality, whatever that may be. They're important, but that's not going to sustain you for 50 years, 60 years, 40 years as marriage is becoming more and more rare. I think if we believe in a soulmate or the predestined one, I think that negates our responsibility to cultivate ourselves, to better ourselves. Imagine we live our life with this belief that, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. doesn't matter how much personal development I dedicate to. doesn't matter I'm ambitious in life or I'm caring or I have integrity. I believe in the one. There is someone out there is predestined for me. You're neglecting and negating a lot of responsibilities. And that's once again, laziness. Because you need to take ownership that, oh, if I don't find someone that's good for me, maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it's my responsibility. Maybe I'm a shitty person. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe X, Y, and Z. So I think that's another perspective that I think is very helpful, at least through our context of what we're discussing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why commitment is so revelatory, right? Because if we have this understanding that that someone is just the one, then not that you wouldn't commit to that person, but you'd have a lot of bad expectations in terms of what relationships will look like and, and what happens when it doesn't work out. I, I mean, I remember in high school, there's so many friends and, and peers that would use that sort of rhetoric saying, this person I'm dating is the one. And then they would break up a month later. And, you know, and I would ask them, like, what happened? I thought she was the one. And and obviously they would dodge my questions. And and maybe I was heartless for asking that, you know, in the first place in their deep grief. But and this is high school, James. So, you know, context there. But but no, I, I think you're absolutely right in a sense that seeking the one might not necessarily make the most sense. It might not necessarily be the healthiest. But what is healthy is is understanding that when you are pursuing relationships or anything that's meaningful, that commitment is going to shape your understanding, your beliefs, your views about so many things. It's going to direct your course towards maturity. And this is where rubber meets the road. This is where that whole iron sharpened iron analogy comes into play because you're going to be molded. And, and if you're able to commit to someone despite being molded and being rubbed uh, in several different ways, I mean, that that really is remarkable to me. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, James, so we're definitely uh, coming to an end of the episode, right? I feel like we hit a lot of topics and I purposely didn't want to go too deep into the philosophy or theology or faith because the listeners are comprised of many different sectors and different belief systems. But I did want to have this conversation very openly today because, as I said in the introductions, I've always wanted to talk about Christian faith and Christian God more openly because it's a big part of my identity and who I am because I was saved by His grace and I went through a lot of life, a lot of low seasons, a lot of intense seasons, a lot of tragedy. And at least when I look back in my life, go back to the question of trust versus faith, I personally witness and see a lot of footprints. That reminds me that, oh, these are the God moments. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, Benoit, it's just coincidence or it's not really God. It's whatever. I mean, that's fine. Like I said, I believe what I want to believe because it makes my life more flourishing or fulfilling or whatever that may be. And it just keeps life very interesting. With that being said, I want to hit you with the discover more question. That's a signature question for the podcast. A fold one is after this very vast conversation, what is an area or domain in your life? that you want to discover more about after this show? 
because this show, the name Discover More, obviously it's about curiosity, but I don't even know a lot of listeners know this is my hope is after the two hour episode or whatever that may be for the listeners to put in their own due diligence to discover more about whatever they want to discover more about as a byproduct of the conversations, right? And the second question is, uh, what is an area in our listeners' life that you want to encourage or even challenge to discover more about, to think more about after this conversation with you? Those are really good questions. Um, in terms of what I want to discover more, I really didn't, I really don't want to say more philosophy, but <laughs> I think I, I think that's kind of my, my answer, to be honest with you, because again, going back to all the things that I said previously, I'm, I'm a neophyte compared to my mentors. And, and it's really not a fair comparison, to be honest, because they're like, you know, 60 something and I'm like 30. And so they have like decades of experience on me. And so I think the proclivity for me is to think I need to be where they're at because that's how I see them. But then when uh, back in you know, when they were my age, they were probably at the same place that I was. They're still discovering things. They're still figuring things out. And so definitely, you know, philosophy is one thing I can say, but also I, I think more uh, a little bit more slightly down to earth answer I can give is I would like to discover more what it means to be human. And I, I think that really is so important. Sometimes I get very perplexed and puzzled at how uh, people define humans as, as very scientific, very reductionistic. And, uh, you know, and I, I sympathize, I, I, you know, I understand where those views come from, but, you know, the reality is that people are so complex. People are amazing. People are incredibly different and, and difficult, in fact. And I don't think there's a good cookie cutter answer to describe what it means to be a person. And I can, I can obviously give you the theological answers too. And for me, that's very sufficient. But, but, you know, because I also want to talk to people that don't hold to the faith, you know, I want to be able to express it in different ways. And so what does it really mean to be human? I don't know quite yet. You know, this is an answer that I'm working on. And I'd love to keep working on that as I do philosophy and theology. I think for me, I, I want to continue to discover what it means to be a better person. We can take that in several different directions, whether that's pastorally or uh, in terms of lecturing and being a professor and whatever avenue that means. You know, I, I want to be I want to continually be a good person to the people that that I, I speak to, to people I reach out to. I want to continue to grow. I want to be a good person to my wife. Um, I want to be a good person to my friends, to my church community, to to secular folks, to non-secular folks, to everybody. Right. I want to continue to grow as a person and be a good person because Ultimately, I understand that I am, because I'm a pastor, I, I do represent people of the faith. And, you know, I want to, I, I don't want to add to the statistics of idiots out there that poorly represent Christianity. You know, I, I, I want to do a good job of representing, you know, who Christ is and what faith is. And, and I, I hope at least for the listeners here that I've done an adequate job of that. And if I didn't, then, you know, that I'll continue to work on that, right? Now, having said that, your second question uh, for, for listeners, they're all hard questions, but they're such good questions. I would say I want to bring it back to the emotions, to what we feel and, and, and uh, what we perceive about ourselves. I want to encourage everyone to, to not give up in this pursuit of, of discovering more about yourself, about your desires, about who you are as a person. Um, at times, it will be incredibly discouraging. Because there's a lot of things that we discover about ourselves that we are not happy with. 
there's a lot of things that I discover about myself where I'm like, wow, I am an idiot. I am a knucklehead. Like, why do I do this? Right. It astounds me to see how I discover such bad things in myself. But despite all those bad things, again, there's always good things that I discover. And, and, you know, we're constantly growing as individuals. And I don't think we're meant to perfectly understand who we are. That's not, that really shouldn't be the goal. But to have a good enough understanding for us to be able to articulate this with our words intellectually and with our feelings, I think that's really important. And my hope is that none of us ever give up on that, that goal. Now, the reality is that we'll do this in multitude of ways. Uh, what I don't encourage, obviously, is don't let Myers-Briggs and Enneagram define your entire personality because those are, those are not the, like a paper can't define, you know, the complexities of, of people. Um, I, I would want to encourage people to don't look towards one school of thought. And I've had people talk about not even science, but scientism, right? Uh, the, the belief that we can sort of come to know everything through science. I think science is a great tool that will, that will illustrate how we know things. But when it comes to the uniqueness of a person or yourself, right? I, I don't know that science has actually given us a good argument for why consciousness exists. Maybe, Benoit, you know better than I do. Uh, you know, what I've heard a lot about love is is how a lot of chemicals, neurons, and things firing. Yeah, but why, right? Like science gives us the how, but it doesn't necessarily give us the why. And, and so, you know, I want to encourage people to really explore, you know, who they are, why they do things the way that they do, and explore these things not through just one avenue, but through a multitude of avenues, right? Now, talk to people that have a different perspective and obviously nuance that by, by talking to people that are healthy for you, right? Like don't talk to someone who's going to tear you down. Talk to people that are going to encourage you. Talk to people that are willing to listen, that are willing to disagree, that are willing to, to sharpen ideas. Listen to podcasts even, right? Listen to lectures, uh, maybe even sermons, right? If, if that's your thing, then maybe listen to a sermon and see how that engages with your worldview. But ultimately, I, I, I mean, I just want to encourage people to continue to grow because you know, I think it's a tragedy. It's it's really devastating when people stop uh, growing, right? When people stop investing in themselves. I think it's it's sad because, you know, you are worth it, right? You are valuable. You have incredible meaning. The reality is that there's so many people that care for you. And there's so many people that want to celebrate your accomplishments, that want to celebrate you thriving and flourishing in life. And, you know, I just think it'll be a shame to 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 cease all of that because, because of roadblocks and trauma, right? And, you know, for a lot of listeners, they might disagree with my methodologies. They might disagree with my belief systems. And I welcome that, in fact. Yeah, that's great. You disagree. Let's talk about those disagreements. But I think that's really the goal overall. But when we're talking about discovering more about ourselves, you know, we, we really should talk about these things that we agree with and we disagree with because it's not like a competition where, where I'm trying to prove that I'm right. No, it's just about exchanging ideas. Right. It's about being a marketplace of ideas so that we can share things and we can grow and we can learn. And so that's what I'd really love to encourage with with everyone. Um, and this I'm saying this to myself, too, because I, I need to do this more as well. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of Henry Ford's quote. He said, if I agree with everyone, I would have never created a car. I would have just given people a faster horses. Right. So I think if we all agree with each other, always no new ideas, no new inventions happen. That's literally antithetical to the definition of innovation. So um, I want to, this is a side note. It's kind of related, but not really. I really resonate with what you said in terms of people are amazing. One of my favorite YouTube videos growing up was literally called People Are Amazing. And there are so many 
so many videos of those and just for anyone who's interested, just look it up and you will see these humans who are just wired as we are physiologically. They are doing incredible things like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, doing quadruple uh, air kicks in the air, cool things. And it gave me a lot of joy to see the capacity of what humans are capable of uh, as long as we stay hopeful and stuff. And I sense a lot of the hope from your message. And that was the probably the most preachy shut up this entire episode, which I think is a perfect way to wrap up the episode with because I really do think that we have more than what we think we do at times. I know, James, your social media dark, almost dark. You have an account, but not really active. But uh, this is why I roll out the work carpet for you. Where could people connect with you further? Maybe to talk about some of the disagreements, maybe ask any follow up questions, if any. Where could people find you? I go on Instagram occasionally. It's just, uh, I think it's me, James Lee, I think. But also, I, I, I have a website that I try to update regularly or I try to blog maybe like twice a year, right? <laughs> which is terrible. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to, definitely, I'd love to connect with people. And so, you know, they can definitely connect with me through Instagram or my email or, you know, my website. And from there, obviously, we can share numbers and stuff like that. But yeah, if, if there's anybody that would really like to, sort of exchange ideas to push back against stuff. You know, I, I really welcome that um, or even disagree. I, you know, I think that's really fantastic and I'd love to connect with anybody. And so, yeah, any of these these avenues would be fantastic. And I really, it, it's if you do reach out, I'm very humbled by that. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'll leave James's email, his LinkedIn, his Instagram, and maybe the twice a year active blog information, the show notes. So if people, whoever want to reach out, will reach out. And yeah, as always to the listeners, if you have made it to this far, I appreciate your time, your attention, your curiosity, your belief and subscription to nuances, which is what both of us are here to. If you're listening to this on an audio platform, please also share this with your friends, your family members who thought this conversation was unique and refreshing and brought you any values. And as always, we will see you again on the train of Discover More next time. Thank you for listening.